Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Max Silvestri is a comedian, writer, and actor living in Los Angeles. But for seven years, Silvestri hosted one of the hottest indie comedy nights each Wednesday in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, co-hosting Big Terrific with Gabe Lieben and Jenny Slate. While living in Brooklyn, Silvestri began recapping Top Chef and other mostly food-based TV shows for the likes of Eater.com, Food & Wine Magazine, GQ, and Grantland. He released his first stand-up comedy album, King Piglet, in 2014, making multiple best-of lists that year. That year, he also co-hosted the feed on the FYI TV network. Now he's hosting a new culinary competition series, Recipe for Deception, on Bravo. So let's get to it! So, so last things first, Max. Uh, The first time you ever recapped Top Chef, did you imagine that Bravo would be calling you to host a show? No, I, the, the short answer is no, but you know, look, uh, like, like anyone who gets into show business or comedy, you know, I had no shortage of delusions of past and hopes and futures, but mm-hmm. I can say that, uh, finding my way into hosting a show that I was making fun of, uh, <laughs> you know, from the same network felt like, like an impossible to route right. journey, um, so, you know, and, and that was also, you know, 2007, I mean, to be serious about it, like 2007, which I think is when I started, you know, as much as people were paying attention to, or, you know, like people were starting to read recaps and, and internet writing was, you know, an appreciated thing already. It also felt like it was happening in some quiet, dark corner, you know, like the idea that anyone, you know, I think now we know that like people that are on shows like this read recaps they're reading their comments you know like you're obviously like people know what happens on the internet and they know it's not just like you know basement trolls or whatever (laughs) that it's like that's how real people talk about the show so and at the time that certainly was like well i'm writing this for this you know particular strange audience of uh you know top chef super fans in Mm. new york that read this one restaurant blog and then a few years later it started to be like oh you know like you know, Tom Kalika is leaving an angry comment being like, you know, your joke made no sense. That's not why I hurt my hand <laughs> or whatever, you know, like, oh, yeah, these are these are just humans. And they're obviously going to read, you know, 2000 words written about them, uh, you know, from time to time. So a few years ago when you found yourself uh, with Gail Simmons and Marcus Samuelson on, on the show uh, for FYI, what was that first? Was that the first experience you had as a peer with the people that you had been writing about? Certainly as a peer, you know, um, a little before that show, I had, it was kind of the culmination of the recapping. I had gone on the Top Chef cruise uh, that they did, which was from Miami to uh, Cozumel, Mexico and back. And yeah. it was like had all these chefs and all the judges. And I, and, you know, I was by no means a peer, but it was kind of like the first time I actually like interacted. Like I, I was like pretty drunk and like kind of finally saw, you know, Tom Kalikia, like, in the wild. And the, <laughs> the fans were so intense on that boat that, for the most part, like, you know, Tom and the other, uh, you know, 
the other uh, like name people kind of like had their own sort of roped off area like away from the the herds or whatnot. But right. then you know at night we're just out and about like everybody. Um, so like I remember like kind of facing Tom face to face and he's like, hi, like I'm Max. I've like written those things. He's like, oh, okay, I know who you are. Those are, uh, you know, what do you think of the cruise? And he was nice, but also like correctly cautious. Um, <laughs> but then it, it was, you know, he did, he did not invite me to sit down with him and be like, look, let's have a laugh. We all, we all love your recaps. He didn't put it that way. Um, yeah, no, I know, but, I know that experience myself far too many times. Uh, yeah, I'm sure, you know, like you've written about, you know, an industry of which you're, you know, intertwined and, you know, you have to review comedy specials of people that you very likely could be like hanging out in the cafe next to the <laughs> cellar, you know, with like the next week. I mean, yeah. it's, it's like a certain dance. So when I met Gail, I guess in hindsight, I was lucky that one Gail is like the chillest, funniest, bodiest person. Um, but also I don't think I'd ever made fun of Gail, <laughs> you know, like, uh, <laughs> You know, uh, I I ended up being a uh, a guest diner uh, on one of the episodes this season of Top oh, Chef. It right, hasn't right. aired yet, but like got to sit at the table with Tom and Padma and Hugh, and um, you know, get asked questions about the food. And you know, Tom and Padma are like their own different brands of super intimidating. Uh, so to actually like you know be in the like green room or whatever the like backstage area at this dinner like while you know tom's putting on his tie and i'm putting on makeup and trying not to be in anyone's way just like very out of place was felt far more surreal than even like hanging or working with gail because that was like oh i'm you know face to face with these people who you know i made animated gifs of <laughs> for years you know like staying up till three in the morning because the other thing about the, the the other thing that like kind of haunts my memories of recapping Top Chef is like every, it always aired uh, the nights we had Big Terrific. Oh, so right. like yeah, I Wednesday don't nights. think Wednesday nights. So it's like you know I don't think I ever I probably never watched Top Chef sober. You know, <laughs> like I would come home from hosting a show uh, at a bar that I got unlimited free drinks at, mm -hmm. and then. Um, you know, watch the show, take notes, and then I would go to my day job, hungover, and in between, you know, trying to seem like I was working, uh, would be, you know, spewing out 3,000 coffee-fueled words and trying to, like, animate. You know, people would be like, can you help me with this problem at work? And I'd be like, I'm in the middle of something really important. And I'd try to, like, you know, make Padma's face do some weird thing in Photoshop. So um, very strange to then sit down and have her be like, so Max, what did you think of the fish? <laughs> what did you think of the fish? <laughs> you know, I, I was so nervous and sauced up by that mm -hmm. point. Like I, I think I was like, I don't know. It's great. You know, like, like obviously I've watched so much of this television and even made a little bit right. like it that I know you have to work in sound bites and yeah. I know you have to like quip it up. And I just, <laughs> You know, say something specific, address a thing, you know, they got to cut together the good and the bad of every dish. Like, I, I know in my brain how it works, but I think I've been so nervous, you know, at this event and then sitting down at this dinner that, like, I was just like, I, it, you know, it's good. I think it's good. <laughs> I remember Tom, who I talked to and was very nice beforehand, just kind of, like, looking at me, like, <laughs> uh, I feel like you can provide a little more than that. Um, um, and meanwhile, this, this other guy at the dinner... Um, who like 
is a is a was a TV writer. I, I you know can't spoil the episode or mm. anything, but he TV writer and um and I had never met him before, but a uh, Top Chef super fan that had helped arrange this uh, dinner or had been okay. involved. So he was kind of the other guest diner, and he, in a way that was totally alienating, but also super smart, only spoke in quips, you know, like in the way that there was, even with all the cameras around us, like mm-hmm. it, you know, it definitely had like a real, like fun vibe, like people were joking and it felt like natural. And basically he just kind of would wait until he knew the camera was on him and then would just give like, you know, you know, this seafood's like the sea itself, a little murky, you know, whatever. He had something like done his own clearly planned. Yeah. And everyone was like, what are you talking about? But also, I'm sure once I see the episode, he's going to be in it a ton. Uh, right. <laughs> that's how you play the game. Right. He's awkward in real life, but on TV, they fixed it in post. Yes. He knew. He knew. And he was like, I don't care if these make no sense. All I want is to get three good lines on. I don't want to get cut out of this. And I was like... That is a noble and manageable goal, mm. sir. Yeah, he's not. He wasn't there to make friends. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm here to get put on my show. Now, I I met you. I guess you were you were just out of college when I first met you in Boston. So I know you. Comedy was a part of. I might have been in college still. I mean, because I, I started at the studio, probably in like, '03, roughly, oh, okay. and I graduated in '05. Mm-hmm. But probably '04, '05 was like the years I was there, you know. At the Comedy Studio working. in Cambridge. <laughs> At the Comedy Studio at Harvard Square, yeah. yeah. So I know that you had already figured out comedy was going to be a thing for you. Was was food an important part of your life as a kid too? Or or that just kind of it came? It was. I mean, food was like, I mean, you know, I, I grew up, um, you know, in a family where food was kind of like the main thing and the main organizing principle in the mm-hmm. sense that like, you know, my dad, you know, an Italian-American guy from New Jersey learned to cook from his, you know, Sicilian grandmother, like all those kind of like cliche things. I mean, the idea of sitting down to dinner every night, having a meal, that that's when you sort of like turn off distractions, talk, catch up, uh, was sort of the only way we thought about things. It wasn't until I was like 10 or 11 that I realized that like not everyone like sits down to a home-cooked, you know, Italian meal every night and like lights candles and has bread with dinner and a salad and like talks for an hour. Um, and mostly what we talked about is like what we're having the next day uh, or how this food was, you know, it's not like we were uh, having salons about politics or whatever. <laughs> we just liked food a lot and like to cook and eat it. Okay. Um, so it was certainly like, you know, eating and, 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 you know, taking part in that was like always kind of big in my brain, but certainly not in a way you know, at the time, there was no way that I was ever like, well, I'm going to make this part of my career, you know, just because there wasn't really a, uh, a path for that. I mean, if you were involved in food, you were, you know, uh, a TV chef or mm-hmm. a real chef or, you know, you, I guess restaurant critics were a thing, but even kind of before the internet, they were far more like rarefied things, probably like I don't know, you know, and they were anonymous or whatever. And they were anonymous. Yeah, yeah, and anonymous. So it was sort of like, you know, obviously I already was in stuff the same, so that certainly wasn't the path. Uh, but, you know, when I started doing the Eater thing, it was it was mostly because, you know, I'd seen the show and, and liked it. Mm-hmm. My friend from high school uh, at the time was like the New York, I think, features editor of Eater. Um, she's now like the exec editor of all the sites, but, you know, she, they, 
recaps weren't quite a thing yet. I mean, there was some TV without pity right. was doing stuff. Rich Jozwiak has doing his top model stuff, but it like was not kind of a. It wasn't mainstream. Perfect, at the point. It wasn't mainstream. These overnight recaps yeah. were not kind of a regular thing. No, no. Um, but they had something on their site. I think for the first season that was fine, but it was very like perfunctory. It was like this is what happened last night. These chefs lost. This is what they cooked. And I just sort of offered to her. Was like. You know, I, at the time, I don't think I'd ever been paid to write comedy uh, or whatever, you know, paid to write anything. Yeah. So I was like, oh, can I, I think I could do a, a different and fun job on this. Um, but still, it always felt like I was saying like, a, you know, an outsider thing. Yeah. Uh, it just felt like this is a weird, funny hobby. Meanwhile, I'm pursuing all the normal, like, I want to be a stand-up and I want to write things and you know, make video, you know, all the kind of like more traditional alt comedy, you know, path to whatever. And suddenly fast forward a couple of years, it's uh, not only have I done more of it, but also I think because of Top Chef, because of Food Network, because of just general whatever, um, I think food culture in America shifted where it was no longer, you know, the world of either like you're either in the, in the industry or it's like food network, which is like, you know, at the time when it started, like, you know, for housewives or whatever, you know, whatever, like weird specific, like this is for, you know, enthusiasts or, you know, homemakers or whatever. It mm-hmm. had kind of grown into something where, you know, people watched, you know, top chefs in middle America that were never eating at these restaurants or never, you know, or didn't care about you know, fancy cooking at home, like food just sort of like accidentally or not accidentally, just sort of slowly transformed from being a, uh, a niche thing to being, you know, just another, I don't know, like music or like just right. a kind of a lifestyle right. thing and interest, something that was kind of like part of people's lives, but not only like weirdos, not only weirdos <laughs> or like urban snobs or, you know, enthusiasts. Right. Um, it just kind of was like, Oh, I think now, you know, it's just something we can do other things with. We don't just have to approach food from like, well, only crazy fans are into this. So the only way we can approach it is with like reverence and respect and to treat it like, you know, you know, you're a fan. I'm a fan. Isn't this amazing? Oh, my God, look at this fresh cucumber, whatever. It's like, <laughs> I, you know, it, the line started to, to blend a little and people had regular non-precious attitudes toward it mixed in with liking it or criticizing it or anything else. Um and, you know, suddenly the idea of like, oh, we need a comedian who also knows about food. Was, um, I don't know, a, yeah. a job that was available in more than one place. No, no. Who 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 turned who or what turned comedy on for you as a thing that was not just, oh, it's something to laugh at. It's something that you could do as a career. I mean, I guess you, you can do it as a career, right? <laughs> no, um, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I was like a super comedy fan as like uh, a teenager and younger. You know, when I was in middle school, I watched like all the like weird cut together Comedy Central, like short attention span theater and, you know, uh, all those shows that like showed two minute clips of stand up or whatever. Right. So like I already really love the idea of jokes and stand up, but in a not in like a, oh, well, I've got, you know, Richard Pryor's albums and I've got, you know, I'm really respectful towards the history. It was just like, I like that. And then got very into, you know, Kids in the Hall and Mystery Science Theater and, and Mr. Show and, of course, Simpsons in college and high school. But it still was like, this is not a job, you know, like right. I 
my plan going to college was to be a major in classics and computer science, which is, uh, I, I mean, I don't know. Well, computer science it, it is lucrative. like a great idea. <laughs> yeah. I guess so. And I was like, I'm, what am I going to, I'm going to like combine Latin and programming. Mm -hmm. uh, what a different life that would have been. Um, but I think it was like right when I got to college, I started to realize that there were people that were doing these sort of like, you know, getting involved in comedy. You know, there was an improv group, there was a sketch group, there was a humor magazine that while they were just like extracurriculars that mm -hmm. they're, you know, suddenly I like met people that had like, you know, they had started where I would started being like, I, you know, do comedy on a campus and had then gotten published, made money. You know, like I think my first week at school, I met this senior named Frank Lesser, who's still a friend. Uh, and he was the editor of the humor magazine at the time. Uh, and, you know, I'd written a piece and just seemed very enthusiastic. And he kind of like, took me under his wing sort of and like took me out to this dinner mm -hmm. the first time I ever had Thai food that like an alumni was in town an alumnus uh that had just gotten something published in Shouts and Murmurs and that just seemed so like oh well you've made it you know like you're uh you know you're you're the richest you know the idea like when you're a kid when you see someone do see like a comic do panel on a late night show yeah. you're like well they're on tv they must be worth millions and millions of dollars because <laughs> Um, you know, I started to meet these people and then, and I, you know who he is, uh, Abe Smith, uh, a comedian, uh, an actor. He, he sort of came back to, to, to college. He had taken time off to like do stand up as like a 19 year old in LA and, and do acting and had had, you know, started to have a bit of success with it and had come back to finish school and we became friends and suddenly he was like telling me stories about like seeing Louis go up at the improv and, and funny rumors he knew about this comic. Like it suddenly made this world that felt like I'd always just be an enthusiast, mm -hmm. you know, like the funniest, the funniest classicist or whatever. <laughs> uh, like a, like a tactile world of, of which the, like the entry points were not, you know, uh, insurmountable, you know, like basically all I knew about like behind the scenes entertainment stuff was like what I knew about Simpsons writers. And it was yeah. like, well, I, I'm, I didn't go to Harvard. So I'm probably not going to be able to follow that path. So, um, did you? Are you surprised that that the artistic side was was drawn out of you? A little bit. Um, I think, you know, I like, I growing up, growing up, I felt like a lot of pressure to, you know, get good grades and to, you know, excel and not fuck around. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was like shipped off to school, and it, while it was only an hour away, suddenly, I had the first unstructured time of my life, you know, like I'd always worked every summer, every vacation, even most weekends, either with my family's like contracting business or then I had like a job. Um, it was like the first time in which like, okay, well you have nine hours of classes a week. <laughs> you can take them pass fail, meaning as long as you like, don't flip the table during finals or whatever, mm -hmm. you're going to pass. Uh, and then the rest of your time is to, you know, structure as you like. And, you know, I certainly filled a lot of that with, uh, drinking and sleeping 11 hours a day, but also like it, it did sort of like feel like in a place where it's like, okay, I'm going to like, I'm joining the improv group. I'm joining the sketch group. I'm taking acting classes. Um, you know, I'm hanging out late nights. I'm doing this. I'm now going to like, you know, I, I, that's when I started doing comedy after I met Abe in Boston, you know, I would drive in two nights a week from Providence to like do stand up. It was just like, I had this time and this encouragement, you know, for, 
you know, not from anyone in particular, but just like, okay, I can do this. This is what I want to do the most. And this mm-hmm. feels way more valuable than, you know, getting a, you know, the extra work required to get an A versus a B minus does not seem a better use of my time seems to be to like just fully engage in like anything I can do writing comedy. Like I want to do it all. So, so, and, and you know, Brown, like you said, sort of had that kind of freewheeling, yeah. like you want to do this? Sure. I, you know, I kind of like, you know, I didn't, I, I made up a class, like an independent <laughs> class, like got this teacher I'd had and we did like a comedy writing class with like nine people that I found. And, um, you know, it, it was a very, a school very friendly to, you know, do this how you want it. Um, yeah. now that being said, I still managed to almost screw that up. I almost <laughs> failed out twice. I was on academic probation for a year and a half. Oh, wow. Uh, I didn't know I was, I didn't know I was getting my diploma until my name was said aloud because I had just turned in, like a teacher needed to file change an uh, incomplete to a complete, like the day before my graduation, like my grandmother and parents were out there and I was like, I really hope uh, I get to hear my name. Um, so, you know, even, even considering the freedom I was given, um, I almost blew it. Was your family aware of that uh, mini drama going on at graduation day? At graduation, they weren't. They found out about like the academic probation like way later in a way that <laughs> I hid it from them. Okay. Um, so, because I almost was going to get kicked out. I like got a letter or I like intercepted a letter that says like you as of four semesters only have, you know, nine credits and the bare minimum is 10. Mm. <laughs> so you won't be a student again. Um, so there was this kind of insane two-week panic thing, you know, as I was trying to, like, fix this in the middle of the summer, and I had this, like, one teacher who I did, like, no work in her class. She was a notorious, like, mail-it-in teacher, um, but I even managed to blow it with her. Um, so I, like, found her email account. Like, I drove down to Providence, found someone that had her email address in the department. She was in the Russian lit department, and then, like, emailed her. It was her husband's email address. She didn't even have an email account, and they were, like, they spent their summers, like, in a, you know, tiny, like, no electricity house in the Alps and once a week checked their email in the village. And I had sent this, like, insane letter, sob story, being like, I don't know what happened. I promise I did take the final. Can you please change this from an incomplete and give me credit? And I promise that I'll, like, fix it in the fall. You know, just, like, there was no reason she should have done it. I had no work to show her. I wasn't, like, you know, I was just, like, like this could ruin my life. <laughs> Please don't do this. Um, and she changed it. And so I would like, was like, okay, phew, now I'm just on academic probation. But then mm-hmm. my parents finally did get a letter right in the fall and they were like, what happened? Uh, <laughs> and that was, that was tough. But and by then you were, by then you were in New York already or? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I still had two more. No, I mean, this was happening during school. Oh, okay. Luckily then I feel like I almost missed it again. And found out that it all worked out for, for the end. So then I stuck around in, in New England for like six months saving money and, okay. and doing sets at the studio. And then I moved. And, and how soon after moving to New York did you meet Gabe and Jenny? You know, we have tried to figure it out. I think we must have. I never remember like shaking their hands and meeting them. You know, like I kind of knew that like, you know, I'd already done sets at Rafiki because I knew Greg Johnson from Boston and, and Eugene a little bit. So I'd like already known that when I was in New York, 
you know, I was like at Rafiki Friday nights a lot and had met people. But then as soon as I moved, you know, I think they had just started doing their, they had like a fake talk show every other week called like um, At Night with Gabe and Jenny. I think that was what it was called. It was like basically a morning show at <laughs> night. It was okay. like kind of a weird premise, but let them do their, you know, Gabe and Jenny stuff. Right. And it had guests. So I think, you know, I just kind of like met them in the, you know, suddenly I was there every night and they were there every night and we were all drinking and uh, we were just kind of friends immediately. Like, I don't remember when or how it started and, and neither did they, I don't think. But then how did, when Rafifi closed, then you guys decided to do the show together in Brooklyn. How did that, how did that team come together? Because they were already um, a duo and you were a stand-up and then... Yeah, so what had happened was you know, Rafifi had had kind of like some, some butters before it closed, you know, like it closed for a couple weeks and it was just kind of like a writing on the wall thing. Whatever yeah, there the were last some, show was. There were some death rumors that circulated for a couple times before it actually did close. Exactly. So it was, you know, we, we had, you know, I had had a monthly show there or two different monthly shows and they were doing a biweekly show, but we both kind of like, you know, made the move before the final closing, just kind of seeing that like, oh, this is, this is not going to endure and we're trying to figure out the next thing. So um, they had landed at uh, a bar on North 6th Street called uh, Hugs. Oh, and right, Hugs. I had And I had met this, um, this guy that, like, I think was interning at the AV Club or something and had seen a show, introduced me to Tammy Hart, who was working with the owner of Sound Fix Records to, like, book stuff in the backspace. So... Kind of at the same time, they started their bi-weekly show, and I started my monthly in Brooklyn. And Soundfix was a super nice space, and they were still—they were only like flirt, like they didn't have any other comedy shows, but they were still like figuring it out a little bit. Right. And Hugs was, you know, kind of a nightmare bar, like so many venues are. But I think like they—I think Gabe and Jenny were like, we don't want to do this anymore. When like the person's like, can you guys start bringing your own mic? They were like, uh, what? Like it was just kind of that sort of like nothing ever worked and everything was broken. And, um, and we were friends and had already done each other's shows. And, um, you know, I think we kind of knew that the key to, you know, getting more stage time and also to building an audience is to do weekly. It's like pretty hard to be like, come check us out the first and third Sundays, but not this Thanksgiving. We'll be on the fourth Sunday this November, but then we're back to, you know, like it's kind of an impossible thing. And same with monthly, there's no, you know, you could, at a certain point, I've been in New York almost two years at that point. It's like I milked my uh, college friend pretty dry <laughs> for uh, please come to my shows. So we both wanted to do a weekly show, but none of us wanted to take on the uh, hassle on our own. So we were like, you know, we, we got along. We had sort of the same taste and, and, you know, knew it would be fun. But it was like also this mitigates the, uh, the annoyance <laughs> of booking a show. Um so yeah, we started at whatever June two thousand eight, I guess. Yeah, I know you. I know you had some issues with with that first venue at Soundfix because the neighbors had problems with the noise. But yeah, there was like yeah, and it wasn't really our fault. It was like in conjunction with us, they also started doing music there, and all the buildings around them in in North Williamsburg there were all occupied and owned by you know Polish old ladies that you know, didn't need to be hearing, you know, sound checks at 8 p.m. when they went to bed or whatever. So um, I think it was a matter of, like, 
they literally called the police every single night. Um, so the complaints just mounted up and it got like untenable for the owner of Soundfix. And also like the neighborhood was changing. It also got a little yeah. untenable to have a record store on, uh, you know, North 11th in Bedford when there was like, you know, 3000 a month studios, uh, you know, next door. Uh, and it was suddenly like rich European and, uh, Taiwanese, you know, home buyers and tourists <laughs> coming in and making it a very different neighborhood. So, um, but I mean, I guess that's kind of almost the story of New York comedy is it like shifts neighborhoods and such for the same reason that Murphy became a Buffalo exchange. Yeah. Sound six now has like, you know, it's some poor shit, you know, a fine restaurant that has an oyster happy hour and like subway tiles in the bathroom and, you know, has a $14 burger or whatever. And that's fine. Like I like all those things, but, um, it's, you know, it also was pretty cool when it was just like, uh, a comedy show that people could wander into for free. How, how quickly did you realize that you, Gabe and Jenny had kind of magic in a bottle though? With I mean, it felt pretty quick. I think it felt, um, our energy together was like, it was always, you know, we always like looked forward to doing it and just seeing one another. And mm-hmm. it like, you know, it was just like, Oh, this is, this is, and we, we had so many friends we were excited to put on and watch, you know, like we just booked the show. None of us kind of had the mindset of like, well, you know, I'm here to hustle at stand up, and I'm trying to get six sets a night. So a weekly show exists as like a, a chit or a bargaining piece, which is like, I think how a lot of, smartly how a lot of young comics treat it like oh well if i'm involved with this weekly show then i can trade spots get on other people's shows you know it becomes more about their ability to get booked than it does about you know a super fun best show possible every week Mm -hmm. um so we were not concerned with like giving comics we didn't like spots in exchange for you know seven minutes on their crappy shows we just wanted to like book comics we liked watching so it immediately felt like Oh, this is this fun, special energy that, to be honest, like for a brief time, I think, you know, builds people's hunger uh, for Rafifi being gone. You know, I wouldn't compare ourselves to invite them up as far as like, you know, the kind of like groundbreaking sort of stuff that happened every week. But as far as like an audience wanting to see young, fun stuff and, uh, and you know, building a following, I think there wasn't kind of a lot like that for a time. Um yeah. And also it's sort of, we lucked out and I think three, you know, at the time when we were starting our show in Williamsburg, you know, you would talk to like a comedy central exec and they're like, well, you're doing a show in Brooklyn. Like who's going to come over there? You know, or like, <laughs> for, you know, like they are bigger comics that like, you know, had two bedrooms in the West village that are like, oh, I don't know if anyone's going to come to to Williamsburg. Uh, <laughs> not quite realizing that there was like a pretty giant hungry population of, uh, you know, young hips, kids that like to go out that were tired of taking the L to the East village for things to do, you know? Um, so we sort of like had this like real intense following real quick. Uh, but you also kept, uh, one of the things that's remarkable about you is that you kept, uh, your day job for quite a, quite a while. Um, right. Yeah. For a really long time, (laughs) longer than, (laughs) longer than any of my other friends. I mean, I had it until, I guess it'll be three years in, in April, but, you know, I only quit it in 2000, 
quit it in 2013. It was seven. You know, I started my day job the day after I moved to New York. Like I waited to get a job until I moved. Mm-hmm. I waited to move until I had a job. And I happened to like pick this date to leave it. And when I got my paperwork from the job, it said like, okay, here's your termination paperwork. Your start date was March 30th, 2006. End date, March 30th, 2013. Like seven years to day, accidentally. Um, (laughs) But yeah, way longer than anybody else. It was, uh, you know, an exhausting hustle. Um, And that was was working at MoMA, was that right? Yeah, I was at the... uh, at the Museum of Modern Art with the um, same job title for seven years, which uh, speaks to how ambitious and focused <laughs> I was <laughs> on that job while I was there. Truly no no movement. What, uh, what, just what, was, what was your job title? I was the, um, I was the systems administrator, mm-hmm. kind of specifically like the network and digital systems administrator. Okay. So I like managed the servers that held the website and the like, you know, image databases and stuff. So kind of like, you know, I didn't do most, like I wasn't designing the website or any of that, but like kind of important equipment, you know, like <laughs> my stuff screws up, uh, the websites go down, the mm-hmm. store goes down. Um, it was kind of a weird high pressure environment. Uh, and you know, I didn't turn my phone off for seven years because I was on call 24 hours a day. Um, but it was, does, it does show that you completed your computer science studies though, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I at least, <laughs> proved the point about five years longer than it needed to be proven. Um, you know, I mean, I had like, the weird thing was, is like, it was a flexible job. Like mm. being on call um, was a nightmare, but also it meant that like, if I came in late or left for two hours in the middle of the day, it wasn't like a, a, a clock punchy thing because they're like, you know, you're the one waking up in the middle of the night. So we're not going to begrudge you, you know, this flexibility. Mm. So like, you know, I kind of like, you know, I like shot a pilot while I was there for Comedy Central. I would like take vacation to like go on tour, like opening for like, you know, Aziz or something. It was like, it, it's, I managed to make it work. Uh, and it being an art institution, a lot of people had side hustles there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not a rare thing in New York in general, but like they were strangely enthusiastic about it. Like if you had, if you had any other job and you're like, oh, sorry, can I leave early? I, I really want to try to get this other job. You would probably be <laughs> disciplined, but there was kind of, you know, I, comedy is a novel thing and people, you know, like people thought it was very cool that I was, you know, I'm, you know, I have a commercial audition and they'd be like, that's awesome. You know, good luck. And so in March of 2013, when you decided to, to leave MoMA, did, was there a turning point in your career where they, even they at MoMA were like, oh, yeah, Max, you're going to be on TV now. No, and it certainly didn't feel like that at the time. I mean, you know, it it was, I kept waiting for the turning point, which is why it suddenly stretched from four years to five years to six, seven, as other friends were, you know, uh, you know, having success or having, having made the, like, risk or the sacrifice earlier. Mm-hmm. But, you know, because it was such a cushy job, uh, and because, you know, my parents were very nervous about me becoming a, uh, comedian, which was very confusing to them. You know, I was, I was sort of waiting for that thing that never happened, which is just like the magical, you know, the magical opportunity that gives you perfect continuity in both, you know, paycheck and quality of life as if like there's some job you get offered while you're working a day job where they're like, okay, I'm the president of showbiz. Here's a two year contract (laughs) where we guarantee it's going to work out. Like the business is never like that, but that was kind of my excuse for why 
you were waiting. I hadn't. Yeah. And I think I was waiting. I was waiting for a thing that was never going to happen. And I, I was drunk at the, the bar at the top of the standard. Uh, Aziz was having some party for, I think, like uh, maybe a show at Town Hall or something. Like there was a bunch of comedians there. Eugene was there. Eugene, who I've never been like best friends with, but who always has been super friendly and nice and also like a bit of like, you know, he's provided sage advice for me accidentally mm-hmm. at a number of key times in my life that have like, you know, that has propelled me to make changes. Even when I was just like a weird drunk, basically open micer at the comedy studio, you know, he would like stick around and be drinking and like, you know, be very encouraging and such. Like he's just been a, and I mean, I'm sure that there's probably a hundred comics that have passed through New York that if not more, that would say that about Eugene, you know, like he is a very kind, big hearted, smart guy. And, you know, he was asking, we were talking and, I told him that I was still at something the day job came up and he was like, what? You still have a job? Like you're what? You're like almost 30. Like you're doing the stuff. Like, why do you have a job? And I was like, well, it's complicated. I'm waiting. You know, like gave my weird <laughs> dancing answer. It is. It's very, you don't understand Eugene. Um, I, none of us, not all of us have festivals with our names on them. You know, I, my brand is harder to define, whatever, whatever bullshit I told him. And he, he, uh, he just looked at me or was sort of, you know, he was just kind of like, you just need to quit. You'll have one hard year and then it'll be fine. And you can handle the hard year. Mm-hmm. And it was like the first thing that kind of shook me out of like, you're right. You know, like what with this weird fear I'm having of like, you know, I'm going to be destitute or whatever, um, is an unreasonable thing to stop me from doing what I want. And around that time I'd like gotten this, um, there was maybe this like travel, kind of food comedy web series thing I was going to do with the cooking channel mm-hmm. that was seemed like a real thing. It was like, Oh wow, this is shooting in April. I, you know, I need, I'm going to quit in March and you know, I'm going to save up. So I kind of had like for five months, I sort of like saved a ton of money and like any extra work I got, it was just like paying off debt and just being like, I'm ready. I'm ready to do this. And then even though we got me off or the cooking channel thing fell apart and they're just like, we're changing our budget, not doing this this year. I'm sorry. So all this planning I'd made, quit for this job that was even though it was only a six-week job felt like that's enough um fell apart and so but i was like you know what screw it like i'm gonna quit anyway so gave my notice and uh just being like i hope it works out and i can handle a hard year uh but then it kind of you know as they do things lucked out something when you're available stuff starts happening you know i was able to open on the road a bit for some people and then we shot kind of like the uh the pilot of the feed that show I did with Gail and Marcus over that summer. Um, and, you know, I pieced together work. I sort of like was weirdly doing like some sponsored comedy writing behind the scenes, garbage stuff that, you know, just let me pay rent without having to, um, you know, uh, fix people's websites on the side or whatever, right. you know? So, um, it worked out. Eugene was right. So Eugene has given you a bit of advice knowing or not knowing it. What's the last great bit of advice you've received oh that's such a good question um man don't take the 405 at five o'clock yeah right (laughs) i mean uh right i feel like i feel like being in la a lot of my advice is oh don't make plans uh in Santa Monica for the afternoon during the week, you know, like, <laughs> not, which is not as relevant to audiences right. um, 
you know, I was talking to someone and they gave me, I think, you know, I think the best advice I'd sort of gotten recently from someone was like, I was, I think, bemoaning some very cliche experiences and working, you know, I don't mind compromise and creative pursuits, you know, like I want to, this is a business and I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, uh, you know, crazed auteur trying to like, you know, only imprint my vision perfectly on the world and who's going to pay for it. Like, you know, I like, I've done a lot of different things and like working in those structures, you know, whether it's like trying to write cable things or network things or host a show or do this. Like I'm all for, you know, compromise when necessary. And I think it, it limits tend to like help comedy and art in general. Mm-hmm. But someone was like, you know, if you can hold on to something that uh, you don't have to do that. And I think as much as it's probably held me back from like having, you know, a, a great seven minute late night spot or anything, I think always sort of holding on to stand up as the one thing that I only do in terms of like bringing myself joy and not in terms of like kind of working within the hierarchy of this industry. And Mm -hmm. it's not to like criticize it or whatever. It's just because I, you know, I do other stuff and it's like, I want to make sure that I'm always um, feeling like most myself doing stand up and excited to do it and not worrying about, you know, uh, fine tuning audience reactions by the second or whatever, you know, like it's, uh, it's, it's kind of like for me, the last place to, to just sort of like let that voice out unfiltered. And, you know, that's, that's no path to success in a normal way, but, you know, we're sort of lucky with kind of the big terrific following or whatever that I still like get to do it and do it on the road or do it in LA and, um, you know, have an audience that is willing to listen to, very unstructured rambling. <laughs> and that voice has served you well. It's gotten you, uh, it's gotten you on TV. So, yeah, right. So whatever, <laughs> you know, it worked out. So when, so when somebody, my hour special's not ready yet. <laughs> the follow up to King Piglet. So when, when a, uh, when a, when a new person comes up to you and asks you how to, how to succeed in show business, what's the first thing you tell them? Um. It's actually repeating Eugene Merman advice yeah. uh, that I heard a long time ago, which is uh, just don't stop. Uh, I remember someone once interviewing Eugene or asking Eugene about like, man, what do you think it is about this like crop of people you have around you, Jonathan Benjamin, Leo Allen, whatever, that you've been working with a long time and you all have like achieved the success in different ways. And his response was like, they're just the ones that didn't stop doing it. You know, like I'm, that there's lots of people that was were around that don't have that, that just sort of gave up or whatever. And just the idea of like, this is a, this is a long game. Um, this is a long game and like, don't have a backup plan. You know, <laughs> I, I think don't have a backup plan is sometimes not fun advice to hear. And maybe it's not responsible to give to everyone. Right. Um, but if you like really are committed to it and think you have, you know, something to say or something special or it doesn't even have to be that special right. like enough that you think you can exist in the place like you can't you can't have one foot in and one foot out you know like as much as I had a day job I also was like I'm not going to be good at this and work hard at it and this is not a career that I'm building for myself you know like all the effort and all the mental energy needs to go into this other thing because I don't have any other any other plan yeah which I think it's hard for like parents to hear or it's hard for like, you know, 
maybe it's hard for millennials to hear who I think have a real like, you know, especially go getter attitude that it's, you know, often this like, well, if they're not, you know, living their dreams and being a showrunner by the time they're 25, what the fuck the world's not fair. And it's like, you know, just, uh, you know, I feel like just getting to, uh, getting to like swim in the pool is, uh, it feels like we're word enough, you know. I don't. I, I have lots of things I want to do that I haven't done yet, but also I've like had the most fun and still like such a lucky thing to get to, you know, do whatever weird thing I do. Yeah. Well. Well, Max, thanks for thanks for not giving up before uh, we had a chance to to chat on the record. I, I appreciate. it. I'm really glad we did. Um, I uh, still might give up, but I'm glad we have this record <laughs> of it for uh, for posterity when I'm. Yeah, for when I'm fixing websites again. And, and congrats and uh, bravo on, on joining the Bravo family. Oh, thank you so much. It's wonderful. <laughs> we, have, uh, we have a standing Sunday night dinner party. Uh, lots of characters, lots of white wine. <laughs> Stay tuned for that. Thanks, Max. Yeah, take care. Bye. Bye. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.